Welcome to the month of September. Oh, we have a great show for you this month because we're going to two brilliant locations. The first one, Hever Castle, of course, is a mecca for Tudor lovers, particularly for fans of Anne Boleyn. And I get to go in conversation and on a guided tour with Owen Emerson, who's the house manager at Hever. And believe me, we get into all sorts of nooks and crannies. So I am so, so looking forward to taking you on that journey. We're also going to be hearing from Richard Thomas, who's the director of the archaeological dig that's been going on at Bradgate Park over the last few years in their quest to identify more and find out more information about the original Tudor house in which Lady Jane Grey is known to have spent some of her childhood. So more on that later in the show. Before we get going, though, I just want to remind all you lovely peeps out there that um, there is now a Patreon programme for supporting this show, should you wish to do so. And there are many different entry levels of sponsorship, starting at just $1 a month. And of course, as a big, big thank you from me, there's also lots of rewards and goodies on offer. So if you do want to become a patron and support the ongoing development of the Tudor Travel Show, then look out for the green button on the Tudor Travel Show homepage and you'll find out everything you need to know from there. So, good. Without further ado, then, I think it's time to head off to Kent and to Hever Castle. Now, I went down there in August on a really beautiful sunny day to meet up with, as I said, Owen Emerson, who is house manager at Hever. And we started our discussion about the history of the castle outside of the castle in front of that iconic drawbridge and gatehouse before we headed inside to explore all the different rooms of the castle, particularly focusing on how the castle looked during the 16th century. So I think it's time to get straight on over and get talking to Owen right away. Hi, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here, and today we're in the magnificent Hever Castle in Kent. And I'm here to meet Owen Emerson of Hever Castle, who's going to take us on a very special guided tour. So why don't we go straight on over and meet with Owen right now, and let's just dive in. Thank you so much for inviting us here to see Hever Castle on such a glorious day. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's so lovely to welcome you. Oh, that's wonderful. And of course, this place is such a mecca for so many Amberlynn fans. Oh, yes. And um, I've visited just once or twice <laughs> uh, in my time as well. But you're here to kind of take us into all the nooks and crannies and tell us some of the stories and hopefully bring this place to life. So before we, we're going to go on a tour of the castle, but before we do that, maybe you could just give us a little potted history sure. of, you know, when was the first castle here? What do we know about that? And, and take us through the timeline towards the end of the Tudors. Absolutely right. So um, we believe that Hever is built around 1271. That's when it's believed to have been built. There is a license to crenellate, that is to embattle the manor here at Hever in 1271. And we believe that was granted to a man called Stephen de Penchester, right. uh, who was heavily involved in nearby Penshurst Place okay. and um, uh, was granted to a a man called William de Hever, who is believed to have been the, the builder. Uh, there is some um, sort of mystery about the origins of Hever. We're hoping to uh, sort of clear that out in the in the near future. Um, and then the castle goes to a, a family, a, a Kentish family called the Cobham family, um, who are very influential. So we then move into the Tudor period, and and who owned the house then? 
So Hever was purchased by Geoffrey Boleyn, who is Anne Boleyn's great-grandfather. He was a man of uh, relatively low means at the beginning of his life and managed to work his way up through guilds um, to uh, the position of Lord Mayor of London and is able to buy this fabulous property uh, for his family seat. And uh, his son William then inherits and thereafter Thomas Boleyn, who is, of course, Anne Boleyn's father. Mm. And Anne Boleyn, we believed, would have arrived here in around 1505 and this is where she spent her childhood this is where she spent her formative years um, and uh, we'll talk a bit more about yeah. where she would have inhabited and so maybe those some of the spaces. events that occurred when we get inside absolutely yes that's wonderful okay Berlin's. I know that Anne of Cleves, of course, came to live here. How did that happen? So after the fall of the Berlin's and the death of uh, Sir Thomas Berlin, uh, the property then passes very briefly to James Berlin. Um, he um, then sells it, really swaps it with some properties in Norfolk, the family uh, home, really, uh, with the Crown Estate. Uh, so it becomes part of Henry's Crown Estate. Um, and then after his annulment, uh, uh, of the marriage with yes. uh, Anne of Cleves. The property is then passed um, to her. She's really allowed to sort of rent it and Henry pays right. her rent and he's, that, that agreement is put in place for her lifetime. I see. Um, uh, and we know that Anne spends a lot of her time here at Heaver. Does she indeed? She does indeed. Because that's something I haven't really researched a lot of and it was one of my burning questions yeah. for, for you today. So how much time did Anne spend here? Well, uh, It's really her country seat. Um, so uh, we know that perhaps just after the annulment she doesn't spend a huge amount of time here but increasingly as her um, fortunes deteriorate uh, certainly when she transfers from being uh, the Queen's sister uh, the King's sister uh, to being the King's aunt uh, with Edward uh, he strips away a couple of palaces from her Bletchingley and Richmond and we know that Anne increasingly spends her time here at Hever. Oh, that's really um, interesting yeah, so is, I know there's I've seen at least one letter from her here are, yeah. there, are there more? There certainly are and and a lot of them um, are to, uh, to Cleves. They're actually located oh. in the Cleves ar uh, archives. Oh, there. so she's writing home to her That's family right, yeah, at absolutely, home. yeah. isn't it which is is this the oldest part of the oldest part of the castle yeah it certainly is we're just walking from the medieval part of the castle uh, into Geoffrey Boleyn's house that he sort of slotted in between the curtain walls um, it has been renovated by the Astors but this is uh, the, the Boleyn's family home that he uh, inserted into the castle and is this how it would have looked in Anne's time are there any features that are different to how she would have known it yeah so the Astors restored a lot of the wood um, and and the patterning we know would have been different and also uh, the levels are, are slightly different uh, for example there are three levels over here when the, originally there would have only been two um, with the third level at the back uh, the long gallery which we'll see later I see so so really it was a little bit more squat maybe That's right. yeah, uh, absolutely. In, in the 16th century yes. um, so and Am I right in thinking that in the medieval period there would have been just maybe a simple hall beyond there? That Absolutely. We even think there could have been what is called a loggia, an open uh, space uh, with a gallery above it. Um, so early long galleries uh, had an open space below them and then a, a simple gallery above, which is what we have with the staircase gallery. Uh, so there's every possibility this was an open space that we're going into now and uh, and then we'll go what, what into what was the Tudor kitchen. Okay, well maybe Maybe we should go and do that right now. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, 
going. This is such a beautiful room now. It's all beautifully panelled and there's all this glorious wooden carving, fabulous paintings. But in the 16th century, this is not how this room would have been at all, is it? Not at all. We're actually um, uh, in this rather deceptive space at the moment uh, because this was uh, actually the Tudor kitchens. Uh, this is a very much a domestic part of the castle and uh, it certainly wouldn't been uh, inhabited uh, by the Boleyns themselves, although I'm sure children used to sneak in. Sneak in, in as children do. Dart around, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so in, in, in essence, really, um, my understanding is the Great Hall is beyond us in that direction. There would have That's been a right. passage through here into the kitchens. And then the yeah, kitchens you can actually see here. the passageway still here. Oh, that is the passageway uh, yeah, behind we've, that uh, door. We've got uh, some hidden doors here. Ah. And uh, yeah, so that would have been the passage through into the Great Hall. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we would have had huge, great big fireplaces over here. And um, yeah, this would have been a very, very different space indeed. So would this have been the size of the kitchen or has it been, um, it must be because of those thick walls. I can't imagine they... <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a small family home. So yeah, um, uh, yeah this is precisely the, the size of the kitchen. It's actually slightly uh, larger than it would have been. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, uh, Perhaps a shame that we don't have the original kitchen still, but we do have this fantastic reception room. I must admit, the Astors did do a good job, even, really even though the interiors, you know, aren't authentic. They Absolutely. did a wonderful, wonderful job. They so. really did. this beautiful room and whenever I walk into this room I kind of just takes my breath away because it's so beautiful it's very feminine they've got this gorgeous inlaid panelling this amazing molded ceiling but when I was doing my research for Le Ton Viandre and also for uh, In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn I, I, my understanding was that the family didn't really use this side of the castle so so what do we know about what was here? Sure well um, you're completely right we're actually start, uh, standing in what was the larder uh, for the Boleyn uh, behind us again would have been another larder and beyond that the dairy this is the um, we're in the walls of the castle it's a very cool place and um, so we do have a very crude um, drawing of, of what was here and um, yeah so this is again is a very uh, domestic space it's just off of the kitchen and it's a, a place that the Boleyns wouldn't really have inhabited yeah kind of what an uh, amazing transformation Astor has affected in here yeah he's just transformed this from a place of labour into a place of leisure because he has no need uh, for that early space. Yeah, very well said. into this side of the castle. So it's the opposite side of the castle. So That's which, right. we, are we east, are we west? Where are we We're at the, the moment? We're in the west wing of the castle now. And we've just walked through uh, what is now the library. And that originally would have been the Chatelaine's office. I see. Um, so you're, we're moving into a very privileged part of the castle. Uh, we're now very valued guests because we are entering the private sanctum of the Boleyns. And that was the Chatelaine's office in that direction. So that was really the territory of Elizabeth Boleyn. So if her husband Absolutely. was away, at court or on diplomatic mission, that's where she would run the castle from. Absolutely, that's where the finances of the castle, the estate was run from. And um, we've now moved into a private space. Hmm. Uh, we talked about the creation of a private space, and this is uh, the Boleyn's Parlour. 
Right. And so just to orientate everyone, if Indeed. I put my hand on this wall here, That's on the far side is the Great Hall, where That's we've correct. just come from. And we're supposing that there would have been a doorway that led Indeed. through from the Great Hall into this private space. So this is a place people would come to to retire, wouldn't it, and have some privacy. Absolutely. This is a, a, a real definition of the Tudor period um, and also the status of the Berlin family. This is Thomas saying that I can afford private space, something that wasn't uh, expected in the medieval period of a man of his status. This is really saying he's mm. risen up in the world. And he's also telling uh, his visitors that he can afford for his women not to work. This is where they would have done clean work, uh, such as black work. Um, so he's, he's really letting people know that he's... he's and the black work being the embroidery, that beautiful That's embroidery right. on cuffs and, and, and sleeves that we would have seen. That's right. It's considered a, a, a leisure pursuit. It's not a, a, a pursuit of labour for a woman uh, of, of Elizabeth's status. And I love coming in here and thinking of the, you know, the crackling fire in yes. winter and they've been out riding in the park and they come in here and they're pulling off their gloves and they're talking and, again, goodness no knows what only conversations happened in this room. Oh, many, 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 many. <laughs> many, many, many. So with that, well, actually, we're ready to go upstairs, aren't we, and see we some indeed. of the upper apartments. So we'll go up that fabulous little spiral staircase and uh, carry on our journey up there. Let's go upstairs. We've come up those lovely spiral staircase into this tiny little room, but it's one of my favourite rooms because it's Anne Boleyn's bedroom. And the most obvious question is, is it? Was it? Well, what I can say is it's got a very long tradition of being called Anne Boleyn's bedroom. Um, and it certainly would have been a space intimately known to Anne uh, because we are now above the parlour uh, and therefore we are in the great chamber. This is the solar, uh, the sunroom. Uh, mm. or the private room. Mm. Uh, so this that stretched right across this wing, didn't it? Right across the west wing, mm. and this is the innermost private sanctum of the Berlins. Mm. You were very privileged people indeed if you were allowed into this space. Mm. You're very close to the family, and uh, this is really where they spend all their time at Heaver. If they're not outside hunting and hawking, they're essentially in here, living Absolutely. and sleeping. Is that right? Absolutely. So we can definitely say this is an anteroom to that great chamber uh, but in the great chamber which we'll go into shortly uh, that is where they did everything basically this is their their private space now there's a lot of sort of i often get asked questions about where did people sleep where did am sleep where did yeah. george sleep where did the you know the uh, thomas and elizabeth sleep now my understanding is generally in these large open rooms they were they were they didn't have separate bedrooms you had to be right at the top of the aristocratic heap if you like to have separate bedrooms it would more be like partitioned and oh. everybody slept in in the family slept in one basically in one space, is yeah, that right? Is that very your much so, absolutely. So um, we talked in the Great Hall about um, servants bedding down. Very much the same concept is uh, applied to the Great Chamber. Um, almost certainly the Lord and Lady of the house may have had a separate uh, bedding down space, uh, but certainly the children would have all had... Um, sort of semi-permanent beds in that area, often partitioned off with tapestry. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a, a multifunctional space um, that is repurposed throughout the throughout day. Throughout the day. Exactly. It's also their private dining room. That's where they dine on family. Yeah. Um, so it's... So yeah. it's, it's shifting all the time and the servants would have come up and maybe put the hanging spaces up and then, and then move them away during the day. Absolutely. It's yeah. a, a multifunctional space. It's very economical. You only have to warm uh, this one area for the family. Yes. Um, so, uh, but yes, if, if you you want to walk in Amberlynn's footsteps, you're in the right place. So this whole wing is part of that? Absolutely. Having left Amberlynn's bedchamber, we walk through into this much larger chamber. So as you were saying, this was once the great chamber, part of the solar that extended across this entire wing. It's been divvied up now, hasn't it, yes. into a smaller chamber. But so, you know, what else can you tell us about, about this room? So I told you originally that there are only two floors um, to this uh, castle. Uh, so originally it would have been a much larger vaulted ceiling to the great chamber. Oh, I see. Um, and and 
we know um, that also, we mentioned earlier, Anne of Cleves, this is also her great chamber. This is where she spent most of her time. Yes, because I've seen online, there's an old photo, Anne of Cleves chamber, and it's done as a, literally as a bedroom. Absolutely, it? Yeah. yeah, and it was a, a bedroom during the Astor's time. So uh, we know that when she's writing those letters from Hever, it would have been in this, this is, space. This, this is where is she did here. it. Yeah, so absolutely. It's a really intimate space, and you've got a couple of fantastic artefacts in here, haven't you? Really you really do, yeah. And one of them that I really love is this incredible tapestry because it's is it date from 1520 1520s that's absolutely 1520s correct, yeah. and do you want to tell us a bit about it and, and any kind of juicy tidbits that sure. you can you know <laughs> enlighten us with so this is very much a working theory and something that um, Alison uh, our curator and I are sort of speculating about at the moment but traditionally this was bought as the wedding tapestry of Mary Rose um, Henry VIII's younger sister yes uh, to Louis XII um, and there's always been a question mark over that because it's a, a fruitless marriage only lasts a very short period of time. Uh, and as we know, tapestries take a long time to create. Um, so good we've point, always, Owen, we've always point. wondered why uh, a tapestry that might have even taken six years to create uh, would have been uh, continued uh, after a less than six month marriage. There is a clue, however, and it's uh, just here. Um, ah. This actually says Esther. Uh, you, and, gosh, I've never noticed that. And the crown of Esther, if mm. this is her, is very similar to the crown worn by Esther in Henry VIII's own tapestries of Esther. And Esther is actually quite pertinent to Anne Boleyn's story because, of course, we know uh, that John Skip, her, uh, her almoner, evokes uh, the tension between Esther, the Jewish queen, and Haman, uh, who tries to bring down uh, the Jewish queen. Uh, and, of course, Haman is hanged. And this was largely seen as a, a threat, uh, a warning shot from Anne to Cromwell um, uh, regarding uh, the dispute that they're having at the time. So we well, might that have something... Yeah. different light on this tapestry doesn't it it's a work in progress but yeah these things are slightly uh, starting to unravel so do we think even if it's got a different story behind it that any of the Boleyns are actually portrayed in this picture well tradition is that um, if this is the wedding tapestry that Anne is somewhere depicted in the tapestry yes. some people say it's this young lady over here yes. uh, because we know that she's in attendance uh, at that marriage um, but who knows, who knows? I mean, everyone has their own they do and I have I have mine which is that lady in the blue ah. she looks exactly to me like the portrait but there you go yeah, she's got her nose I'll give you she's that <laughs> <laughs> but you know well maybe we will know we're always saying aren't we that we'll never know but things are coming up all the time wait so and see yeah. wait and see <laughs> And this is this beautiful staircase gallery. It's just filled with light. And it was such um, a trendy, wasn't it, feature in its day. And I, and I guess quite expensive to build. What, what can you so. tell us about it? Well, we know that galleries are really a status symbol, uh, as well as being a practical way of linking two wings of uh, a medieval uh, property together. Um, if this was built by Thomas Boleyn, as it is believed to have been, it's one of the earlier galleries in England right. uh, to have been built and of course there's another one upstairs uh, which again has a question mark over it as to when it was actually built uh, but originally this is where the Berlin staircase would have opened out into hence the name the staircase gallery yes because it, the Astors changed everything around so did, originally yeah. the staircase was really right next to the the, the door and, and would That's come right. up in, in like a not in a spiral, a, but in a... Yeah, in a sort of U-shape up into the Up, up into, into the, the staircase gallery. So That's there would right. have been an opening somewhere here in this gallery. That That's it, yeah. You would arrive yeah. into this beautiful space. And my understanding is, of course, uh, as far as we know, Thomas Boleyn put in all the glass here, and that was, of course, a very expensive undertaking in Hugely the time, wasn't so. it? Hugely so. Hugely so. And, of course, um, glass was a rather transient thing at that time as well. If you weren't particularly wealthy, you might even travel with your glass yeah. uh, to different properties and it would just be crudely shuttered up for the poor servants that yeah. had to retain the property. Um, but yeah, this is um, a, a stunning status symbol. It's a way of progressing with your visitors uh, uh, to your most important room, uh, yeah. which of course is the long gallery upstairs. Yeah, and we're going to go there in a minute, but just to highlight that, you know, uh, with the change from the medieval house to the Tudor house, that 
they had to have a way, didn't they, of linking the two sides. Absolutely. So you didn't have to go outside or, yeah. you know, you wanted to be able to, as you say, progress in comfort and style with all the paintings of your, um, you know, your most important relatives, family or king or queen on the walls. And this certainly delivers on all, re all regards. It really does. gallery this brings us back into the east side we are indeed the east side so we've come back across the castle now and we're in what is called the henry the eighth bedroom which is a fine looking bedroom with this really magnificent bed absolutely but i get so many people say to me did henry the eighth stay there mm, i don't think he did but you tell us the story okay so i'm going to tell it from my perspective as a historian um we know that Henry almost certainly would have visited. Um, for example, we know that he's staying at his property, Penshurst, uh, in uh, 1528, and we know that Anne is here at Hever. Uh, this is when she is deciding to marry him. Uh, so it's almost inconceivable that he wouldn't have used this opportunity and this more private location to come and visit his mm -hmm, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. But would he have ever stayed at Hever? Mm. I'm not so sure. Uh, and the reason I say that is because he owns Penshurst Place. He can take most of his court, all of his uh, retainers, all of his security, essentially. And it's only uh, four miles down the road, isn't it? Four right, nothing, nothing, nothing for, exactly. for the Tudor king. So did he stay here? It's possible. Um, we know that Henry does stay at properties of this size, um, but we also know that he would have stayed in the most important rooms at that time, which, of course, was the Great Chamber. Uh, and we know that the Billings have two properties, uh, so um, uh, they also have uh, Heaver Brockus, so they might have potentially moved out to Brockus and, and Henry uh, would have stayed here. So uh, I'm yeah. open to the idea. Uh, we can't prove it either way, essentially. Yeah, OK. Right. Well, you know, there are lots of myths uh, in Tudor history and sometimes as much as we'd like to believe something, we might have to uh, accept that maybe it's just not quite right. Indeed. I mean, it might smack slightly of the so-called Anne Boleyn room in the Queen's house at the Tower of London that was created in the Victorian era uh, uh, to a public who just wanted to see the spaces that Anne was in and, and really weren't prepared to accept that yeah. it didn't actually exist anymore. So when we come and enjoy the Henry VIII, bedroom we really just have to uh, just enjoy it for what it is which is a fine recreation of a, of a Tudor room in essentially a Tudor room but the interiors are probably later and absolutely but we've got this great bed though haven't we and that is genuine Tudor you were just mentioning that to me can you what can you tell us about the bed yeah so a lot of research is actually being done by a historian at the moment um, someone very famous uh, <laughs> for uh, researching beds Jonathan Foyle mm -hmm. um, and he has uh, you know demonstrated that there is actually an, an ER on the bed uh, so is that Edward Rex uh, or is it Elizabeth Regina um, we don't know yet but so it's, it's certainly a, a Tudor bed so it's a and you can see by the carving it's just full of, of, of symbolism I'm sure Jonathan's going to unpick that and it's got a whole story to tell us oh yeah I mean it's, it's all there ready to be unfolded as it were mm, very good this has got to be you know one of the most beautiful spaces because it's this gorgeous long gallery here. Um, of course, totally de rigueur for any Tudor house. Uh, so what's the history of this gallery? So we believe it's actually a Thomas Boleyn insertion. This is a huge status symbol. It might be one of the earliest long galleries in the country, actually, in a private house, at least. And uh, this is, you know, the ultimate status symbol. Um, it's uh, also a place of leisure. This is where the Boleyns would have done their daily exercise if the weather was slightly unclement, for example. Uh, and it's also a place to hang your most uh, important possessions, your paintings, and display other items of, of value and of interest to your guests. Um, so it's traditionally thought this is where Henry would have held court when he visited. Mm. Uh, there are some lovely sketches of him doing so in this uh, long, uh, long gallery. Um, but yeah, it's a remarkable space. 
Uh, Aster really elevated it with this fantastic plasterwork on the ceiling. To insert the gallery, Thomas Berlin, basically this is when he put the, he, he kind of put a roof, a ceiling in the Great Hall below and exactly. this really sits above the Great Hall. Yeah, um, so it actually spans the width of the castle, uh, it's above the Great Hall, we're above that now, uh, and also the kitchens, uh, both of which would have had vaulted ceilings beforehand. Um, so although we're in the long gallery, I think this actually uh, serves to demonstrate how small Heaver Castle actually is. <laughs> this is the width of the castle. Uh, yeah. So although it's a very uh, large and airy space, it really demonstrates how, how dinky we are as well. You're always changing what's, what's in this space, aren't you? And, and quite recently, you opened a new exhibition of of paintings. I think that was David Starkey who put that together. And there are some beautiful paintings in here, so maybe we should just wander over and just have a look at a couple of them. I think we should. visit to Hever Castle of course would be complete without us coming to look at a portrait of Anne Boleyn. So here is the lady herself. What can you tell us about this particular portrait? Sure, well it's the iconic uh, so-called Hever Rose uh, portrait of Anne. Uh, it's described by numerous historians as the uh, portrait of her, the most uh, reasonable one that mm. fits the descriptions that we have of her. Um, it's something of a mysterious portrait. It wasn't purchased by the Astors, or indeed our present owners, the Guthrie family. And we know that a portrait of Anne uh, was here um, for most of its history uh, since she was here. Um, we actually have very little provenance for this painting. And uh, Alison, the curator of Hever, is hopefully going to be able to test uh, the wood uh, that it's painted um. on the panelling, some dendro. Uh, chronology on it and um, we're hoping to put it in uh, the timeline of the portraits of Anne. Of course the National Portrait Gallery um, portrait was tested it was. and found to be Elizabethan uh, so we're hopeful that ours might be a bit earlier. Well, yeah, well there you go, we're going to have to watch this space Absolutely. aren't we? Yeah. So yet more really interesting things coming our way. It's all happening here. It's all happening here <laughs> at Hever. Well, thank you so much, Owen, for showing us around. This has been amazing. And, and it's so wonderful to finish our little tour here. This is part of the end of the Long Gallery, isn't it? It's, a, it's supposed to be very historic. Absolutely. I mean, this is traditionally where Henry was um, supposed to have held court. It's at the very end of the Long Gallery, and therefore any visitors to him would have had to process right down uh, to see the, the man himself. And you can imagine him, can't you, in oh. all his splendour with his <laughs> jewels, and oh, it must Absolutely. have been amazing. Yeah. But really, this concludes our tour of the the, you know, the Tudor, particularly the Tudor part. Um, there, is, there are other rooms more related to the Edwardian period when the Astors um, took over and looked after Hever Castle. But, so, so just an enormous thank you from me. And, but looking forward for people who maybe want to plan a visit here, and I know, you know it's at the top of every Tudor <laughs> lover's list. You know, what, what can people look forward to maybe in the year ahead? And yeah, sure. any other? We're just coming towards the end of our jousting season. So anyone that wants to come and see jousting, I'd recommend that next year. I mean, it's uh, a fantastic event mm. uh, to come to. Go to our events page. We have an amazing array of events throughout the season. And uh, it, that concludes with um, 
a fabulous Christmas um, experience here, uh, which I'd love to invite you uh, to come and see. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> I would love to. We'll be right back here. I've never been to Heva at Christmas. I've seen the pictures. It looks amazing. And I think our listeners and those people who may be watching this on YouTube would love to see more of Heva Dress for Christmas. Fantastic. I mean, it's a magical experience. And also, um, after September, when we um, are able to uh, announce some of the history, um, the, the new history of HEVA uh, that has been conducted uh, this year. Yes, because you have um, been doing some digging, haven't you? And yeah, there are absolutely. some interesting things that might be coming our way that we can all salivate over while we wait. Absolutely. We're going to have uh, actually a huge amount uh, to tell you of, of, of the history of this place that, that has never been heard before. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very much looking forward to inviting you back around that Christmas period to, to hear all about it. Well, this is going to be the best Christmas ever, so I can't <laughs> wait. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you. I do so hope you enjoyed that tour of Heaver Castle. If you've been before, perhaps it brought back many happy memories. And if you've yet to go, I hope it whetted your appetite. But again, a huge thank you to all the staff at Heaver Castle and particularly Owen Emerson, who was such a fascinating and gracious guide. Do remember that the link to the blog which accompanies this podcast as a transcript plus pictures will be included in the text associated with the show. So with that, I think we are ready to head straight on over to the Tudor Travel Guide news desk and find out just what Tudor news has been breaking in the month of September. Welcome to the September O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. The Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr, dies at Sudley Castle. Princess Elizabeth is born at Greenwich Palace. Mary I arrives at Whitehall ahead of her coronation. Prince Arthur is christened in a lavish ceremony at Winchester Cathedral. Good day. In a sad turn of events, as we turn to our top story, Catherine Parr, Dowager Queen of England, died in the early hours of this morning at Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire. She was 36 years old. The former wife of His Most Illustrious Majesty, King Henry VIII, departed this life after having contracted purple fever following the birth of her first child. The baby girl was born just six days ago, on the 30th day of August, this year of our Lord, 1548. The Dowager Queen and her husband were reported to have been jubilant at the arrival of their first child, who has already been christened Mary after the Queen's stepdaughter, Princess Mary. However, tragically, the Dowager Queen began to show signs of the dreaded childbed fever three days later, culminating in her death early this morning in her privy chambers at Sudley. In an exclusive interview, we can go over to Sudley and talk directly to an eyewitness to the whole event, Lady Elizabeth Tyrrett, close friend and lady-in-waiting to the erstwhile Queen. Lady Tyrrett, thank you for joining us. There must be great sadness in the Seymour household today. Thank you. Aye, tis true. People are going about their business well enough, but the house is heavy with grief. Her grace was a most gracious and beloved mistress, and it is true to say that many tears have been shed at her passing. 
You have been close to the Queen during her confinement. What can you tell us about the Dowager Queen's last days? As you've rightly said, by the grace of God, her grace was delivered of a healthy daughter some six days ago. May, mayhap it was not the son that both desired. But Sir Thomas and my lady were both delighted by her arrival and all seemed well with her grace, at least to begin with. Then on the third day, as, as is off the case, the fever came and my lady complained of feeling weak. At first Sir Thomas brushed the symptoms aside and I think he did not want to believe the grave danger facing his wife. But the other ladies and I, well, we know the symptoms all too well. We have seen it before. And how did those symptoms progress? With headaches and fever, mostly, in the beginning. One minute her grace would be fiery hot and then the next shivering with cold. Then the pain came in her belly. It was a little to start, but it was fierce fierce towards the end and it made it difficult for my lady to breathe and she became delirious at times and then at others her faith in the good lord seemed to keep her calm in the end did the queen know death was approaching i i, I believe so she called me to her bedside just just the day before yesterday when I arrived in her bedchamber, Sir Thomas, her husband, was already sitting beside her, holding her grace's hand. She was greatly agitated and she pressed me as to why I had been so long. And she said that she did fear such things in herself that she could not live. Well, I tried to soothe her fears. I, I did not want to see her so aggrieved. Yet it mattered not what I said. Grace, she became ever more fretful and she declared that, that she was not well handled and that those that cared for her did care not and that in fact they stood laughing at her grief. And his God is my witness. She glanced at Sir Thomas as she spoke those words. And Sir Thomas, how did he reply? Well, he denied it, as he would. He used many sweet words to pacify her. He even laid down on the bed next to my lady, but it did naught but disquiet her further. I swear to you that she declared she'd wish to see her physician the day she was delivered, but dare not, in case she displeased him. Meaning? Meaning that she was scared of her husband's jealousy. He is an intemperate man and much taken to selfishness. <laughs> anyway, that's how I see it. In any case... To see my lady in such distress, well, it was more than I could bear, and so, I confess, I left the room shortly thereafter. I see. And what preparations are being made now for the funeral? Her Grace's body lies in her chamber, and it's soon to be embalmed, and as is the way. A lead coffin will be prepared, and it has been agreed that she'll be laid to rest here at Sudley, in, in the chapel. The service, of course, will be conducted in English, according to the Reformed religion, as Her Grace wished. God bless her soul. Well, thank you, Lady Tyrrett, for talking to us on this extremely sad day. And that really concludes the September o'clock news. All that remains for me is to say that the TTG News Desk will return again in October, but for now, it's back to the 21st century. Oh, does anyone not love Catherine Parr? I know I'm a big fan of hers and just what an extraordinarily sad day that must have been at Sudley. Of course, she remains now the only English queen to be buried in private land and of course you can see her tomb at Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire and if you've never visited before then make sure it is absolutely on your Tudor itinerary. Good, so now for something completely different. 
Earlier this year, I headed north from where I live to Leicestershire, to Bradgate Park, where you will find the remains of Bradgate House. Now, this, of course, was the family home that Lady Jane Grey grew up in. It is now in ruins, but over the last few years, it has been the focus of an archaeological project by the University of Leicester to learn more about the original Tudor house. This year was set to be the final year, and I headed along there to meet with Richard Thomas, who was director of the dig there at Bradgate Hall, to find out exactly what they had found out. So uh, I'm here with Richard Thomas, who's the co-director of the Bradgate Fields School, and we're here at, um, well, within the ruins, in fact, of Bradgate Hall in the glorious Bradgate Park just outside Leicester. And I'm here, Richard, aren't I, because you're at the end of a five-year dig to try and get to the bottom of the truth of, of what the original buildings here were actually like. Yeah, so we've been excavating here since 2015 and we've been actually excavating inside the house for, for three seasons now to try and understand a little bit about uh, Bradgate House and about how it changed over time. There's a, a traditional narrative about Bradgate House that it was built somewhere between 1499 and about 1520 uh, by the Grey family. The Grey family are a local uh, aristocratic family. They, they have an old hall mm. out in Grooby, which is a village just on the other side of the park. And they start rebuilding. They start rebuilding the Grooby old hall. And then they suddenly abandon that rebuild and come here and supposed to have built a brick-built, unfortified stately home effectively in the middle of one of their deer parks so the, the, the Bradgate Park had been part of the, the family for, a, for since the medieval period mm. uh, but they decide to come here and, and then they, they expand the park so the, the current extent of the park represents the limits of the park 840 acres that it was when when the Grey family uh, moved here they uh, they, they cleared the village of Bradgate. There's a medieval village of Bradgate, so they got rid of all the villages because obviously they, they don't want peasants spoiling the view of their lovely new home. Um, and they built this brick-built house right in the middle of the, of the park. Um, and it's always been thought that the brick structures that are standing now were part of that first phase of building. That the, the house was a, a, court, a Tudor courtyard building uh, and represented one of the first unfortified brick-built buildings of its kind anywhere in England mm. um, and the structure uh, if you can sort of visualize of the of the house is you have you walk into a large courtyard on your left hand side you have the service end so you have the kitchens you have the bakery you have the servants hall in the middle at the back of that you have the range which contains this kind of really elaborate great hall and then on the right hand side you have the domestic space and so it's thought that this is more or less what we see now what we see standing is what was thought to have been. And how been. much would you say kind of in percentage terms you know we're surrounded by ruins here at the moment how much would you say is left of the original house? Oh there's uh, so that so we know that the whole house is abandoned in the 18th century 1739 it's abandoned by 1780s so 50 years later it's described as ruinous so a lot of the upstanding structure has gone um, when the house was given over to the people of Leicestershire in 1929 uh, the, the, they cleared out all the rubble from inside all inside the house and most of the terrace out the front of Bradgate House now is composed of all the all the rubbish oh. that was sort of scraped out and cleared away as they tried to make this a, a romantic ruin if you like for people to attract people to come and visit right. um, so we know there's been you know there, there are you know some of the walls stand to sort of two stories high but a lot of it is effectively down to foundation level right okay so so but there's a lot of confusion isn't there about what bits of the building were genuinely here what did the earlier house look like so you've been here trying to uncover that by digging over the last five years so maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know what you've been doing and what you started to find here and yeah so we're really interested in trying to establish kind of whether it was just a single phase building and we know that after Lady Jane Grey's execution the family lose the estates for a period of time and then they come back 20 or 30 years later and we know there has been some remodeling of the house we always sort of I thought we understood that. So we, we were just trying to understand that sequence of building. 
We started excavating, we started, we got really interested in a building that was marked on a plan of the house, so an architectural plan of the house that was drawn in the 1970s, um, showed a, rec a rectangular building that was on a slightly odd angle. So all the, other all the other structures at Bradgate House are on cardinal points. And then there's this one sort of slightly sloping building that was in the courtyard, and you could see the foundations in the ground, you could see the tops of the stones. On the 1970s plan, they thought it was a later structure. And that would make sense if you've got a courtyard house, why would you have another building in the courtyard? So we started excavating that. And it very quickly became apparent that it wasn't later at all. The whole of this building was covered with a demolition layer that was, had material that had, was no later than the middle of the 16th century. So it had gone down sometime in the early to middle 16th century. So there was nothing later there. And what was critical, there was no brick. There was no brick in the backfill of that building. And then we got down to the building and we discovered it was a stone building. Okay, so so I'm, look, I'm looking at a map now. You're showing me a, a diagram, aren't you? Can you so, just describe what you're showing? Yeah, so I'm showing you what is effectively a, a, an aerial view of our excavations from uh, two years ago that showed the full extent of this building that we'd been investigating. And you can see we've got a rectangular building with stone foundations. At one, one end of the building, you've got a flagstone floor, and at the other end of the building, you've got a series of clay floors. And we originally thought this was a long, narrow, rectangular building, but we quickly discovered that the, the west wall of our building was actually just a partition so it has gaps in between so this is not the full extent of the building yeah. and then we followed the north wall of the building we, we could see that although it had been uh, cut through by later drains we could see it carried on so this building was much bigger right. than we thought mm. we also could work out that it was at least a two-story building because we had the footprint of a stone platform that marked the foundation for an upper story fireplace. I see, I see. Um, and then the mystery got, <laughs> the, 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 it got even more kind of interesting from the floor surfaces of this, um, of this building. We uncovered a, a silver groat of Henry VIII that was minted between 1544 and 1547. Uh -huh. um, but now that smack bang in the time when, so we, Lady Jane Grey's born probably late 1536. Um, she spends the first 10 years of her life here. So that coin was minted at the time that she was a child and probably still living at Bradgate in House. house. Wow. Um, and uh, in 2017, when we excavated, we discovered that this stone building had another brick building coming off the side of it, uh, which you can just sort of see on the plan here. And then, But that was then later chopped through by the upstanding chapel. So the, the chapel is an upstanding, uh, very large brick structure. It's the only structure on the site that has a roof. Um, and that chapel cuts through this later brick structure. So we knew we had at least three phases of activity. We had our stone building mm. that must have come down sometime in the middle of the 16th century or earlier. We've got our, a brick building on the side of it and then we had the chapel. So rather than being one single phase of building we knew we had at least three phases. What we didn't know when we excavated two years ago is just how big this structure was and what it might be. So um, we've been excavating on um, either side, on the east and west of our original trenches to try and track that building and understand a little bit more about it. And just to, did you say that this is in the centre of the courtyard? Is it is in the centre of the courtyard. Right, it okay. is in the centre of the courtyard, yeah. Um, and what our excavations this year have shown is that this building is indeed much larger. So right. uh, in the trench behind me, yep. you can see uh, the foundations of the wall carrying on uh, underneath the trench, so they go underneath this, there's a later drain, there's a very large drain. drain. So that's, that's the drain on the top. So for a diagonal right. drain that runs across the trench, yes. and then we've got this wall line that comes across all the way to um, where my colleague Danny is uh, uh, excavating at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also comes out and also extends out to the north, so there's another bit coming out and a wall extending out to the north on this side. So this building is is, is, is really big and we haven't even got to the end of it yet so wow. it's a huge and it looks like it has at least one range and possibly two ranges so this is looking like we might be in the great hall of a substantial late medieval early Tudor stone building that given the dating evidence we've got from the coin and from all the other dating evidence we've got from the excavations suggests that this is the house of Lady Jane Grey and that the upstanding structures are somewhat later. In fact, the, the, the evidence that we're building so far, we haven't 
done all our analysis yet and we haven't finished excavation, but our analysis at the moment is suggesting that the upstanding structures may be somewhat later, maybe 1600, late 16th century, uh, early 17th century, and relate to when the Grey family returned. Came back, because they came back under the reign of James I. Yes, they do, they? yeah. Right. So they come back and then maybe, maybe it's that point they decide they want to break from their family's history and at that point they rebuild Bradgate House as a courtyard house out of brick using the materials that were here because because I'm, I'm just wondering because obviously brick was very much fashionable in the early yeah. 16th century is that right i'm, I'm not an archaeologist yeah, yeah. specialist in in archaeology or architecture would that be the material that was used at that time or do you think they've just recycled what's been on no, site we know that then we know that the so the the earliest structure is, appears to be stone when they when they uh, when we come back and build this brick structure we we're there we know we're fairly certain that they're extracting the clay locally. There's a field just on the other side of the park called the Dumples. It's called the Dumples because it has lots of pits in it from all the clay extraction. And so we think they're firing the bricks locally and bringing them up to the site and, and building them here. So, yes, yeah, so, um, I mean, there are some, uh, we are, there are some earlier brick structures that we've uncovered below the ground. Um, but I think the upstanding brick structures probably do date to that late 16th century um, and, and, and the return of the Grey family to their estate. Because there's no records, are there? There's, no actual there's not a lot of documentary proof from the, the original building here. So you, ha no. you have to base everything on what you're literally finding, the physical evidence that you're finding in the ground. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we've got some really lovely illustrations of Bradgate House from about 1700. Uh -huh. So that shows the very sort of late stage. I think that house is abandoned in 1739. So it shows the very sort of, the, the ho uh, house at its, perhaps is, is, is most uh, at its peak really, before, it, before they start abandoning it. Mm. Um, but we don't have any illustrations. And the only documentary record that we have around the time that Bradgate House was supposed to have been constructed is John Leyland. So John Leyland is an antiquarian. He's tramping around England describing um, different sort of historic and archaeological sites as part of his itinerary. And so sometime in the 1530s, he's, he comes to Bradgate and describes it as a fair park and lodge. He doesn't describe it as a brick building. He doesn't describe it as a palatial house. He describes it as a lodge, mm. which is perhaps more in keeping with what we're finding under the ground. So it's... We, 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 we can, there isn't much in the way of written sources, but what we can do is we can kind of go back to the ones that we do have and, and, and re-evaluate their significance in the light of what we found in the ground. So, so really you're rewriting the history books here. Everything we see around yeah. us is probably not the house that we've been thinking it is. Yeah, the, the guidebook writers are going, to be, uh, are going to be in business for Bradgate Park, I think. I definitely need to go back and rewrite my blog, that's for sure. So what happens from here then, Richard? So uh, we finish excavations next week. Um, we'll backfill all the trenches. Uh, all the finds will go back to the university. We'll, we'll spend uh, some time pulling them all together. So we're going to be pulled together all three seasons of excavations in the house together, and we'll be writing those up for publication. Um, all, the, all the finds will be going off back to the local museum, and hopefully we'll be loaned back to the park so they can put some on display here in their visitor centre. Yeah, and so we just need to keep our eyes and ears peeled and see what transpires and what final conclusions you get. Yeah, to. absolutely. <laughs> we, we have a Facebook page for the project, so it's okay. facebook.com slash Bradgate Park Field School Great. Um, and while we're excavating we post most days about what we're discovering and as we go in through post excavation as well as we're writing up our reports um, we, we, we're posting news and uh, information that we as we're learning more about the evidence that we've been uncovering um, we'll be we'll be posting we'll posting things with images on on the Facebook site so say that again that's that's Facebook forward slash what's your Bradgate Park Field School all one word there you go folks you just have to tune in there and you can keep right up to date and um, great well, thank you very much for talking to us today no, you're very welcome illuminating these completely new ideas that we have about the place thank you yeah you're very welcome
so that's one of those moments where we're just going to have to change our mind about what we think we knew about Bradgate Park and the house in particular. Those lovely red brick ruins, which I've gazed upon many a time, lovingly uh, remembering or thinking of Lady Jane Grey in residence there. Well, that's not quite right. That old house lies beneath the earth. But nevertheless, the truth will always out. At least, I hope so. And it looks like we're starting to get closer to the truth about what the original house that Lady Jane Grey grew up in was actually like. And I look forward to hearing about how this develops in the future. And of course, if I hear anything, you guys will be the first to know. So that does bring us to the end of today's Tudor travel show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. We've been to two fascinating locations and I really hope you've loved the journey. So remember, also, if you want to support the Tudor Travel Show, you can become a patron and you do so by looking out for the Become a Patron button on the homepage for the Tudor Travel Show. And there's all sorts of different entry levels that you can sponsor the programme through. And at each level, there's all sorts of different rewards and thank yous from me for becoming a sponsor of the show. And if you become a sponsor for the programme for $5 or more a month, you're automatically entered into our monthly giveaway. And this month's giveaway is courtesy of Heva Castle, who have kindly donated a journal whose design is reflected by Anne Boleyn's Book of Hours, as well as two free adult entry tickets into the castle. So a lovely, lovely giveaway. So thank you very much for joining me on this month's Tudor Travel Show. It has been a pleasure and an honour. And next month we're going all Jane Seymour. So I hopefully will be reporting to you from Wolf Hall and also talking to Charlotte Bolland from the National Portrait Gallery about the recently renovated portrait of Jane Seymour. So I'm looking forward to both of those enormously. Until then, my friends... All that remains for me to say is have a wonderful rest of month and happy time travelling to you all.